Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Jericho Brown, Amy Nazuk Matado, Natasha Trethaway, and Rita Dove. You will now hear Amy Nazuk Matado provide introduction. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Thank you all so much for being here at this celebration, this tribute for Miss Rita Dove. introductions, but I did want to mention I am Amy Nazuka Matatil, and um, we are going to have, um, we're going to go alphabetically, so we're going to have love coming from Jericho Brown, love coming from back to me again, and then finishing off with Natasha Trethaway, and then the reason for our celebration, we will have Miss Rita Dove come on up, and then we will open it up to questions for you all from the audience as well. Okay, sound good? All right, all right. Um, Without further ado, I want to give you the talented, the best laugh you will ever hear at the book fair. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Mr. Jericho Brown. Um, I have a speech, but before I make it, I, I do want to say something. Um, I just want to say that talking about, I, I was trying to figure out why um, talking about Rita Dove's work is, uh, always turns out to be some sort of um, Jericho, please shut up situation. Uh, and I, I, I think it's because, and, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit when I, when I, when I read the speech I wrote. Uh, but I think it's because, and y'all know this feeling, when you read something you love, you really feel as if something has been given unto you. Do y'all do you understand? Like, um, like you had a grandmother that you didn't know you, like you, you do y'all understand what I mean? Like, or you have a, a parent you didn't know you had, and suddenly they're there, and they've always been there, but you didn't know they were there. Do y'all understand what I mean? And there's an heirloom. The poem is sort of like an heirloom. Mm -hmm. I get to do this because Robin's not here. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to talk. <laughs> Don't you do But there's, there's like, a, you know how like you have a family heirloom and, and you, it's precious to you. I mean, you know, it's just a doodad. It's like 50 cent. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? But if you were to lose it, you would, you would feel as if a part of you had been sliced away. Do y'all understand what I mean? And I think this is the way I feel about Rita Dove's poems. And I think I get so excited about talking about her work because something happens when something is given unto you where you automatically want to give back. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I was getting ready for this panel that I'll never be able to give back. Do y'all understand what I mean? Like that's the beauty of poetry. That's what happens to us when we, when we read a good poem. Do y'all follow what I mean? So let me read the speech. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> for organizing this and having us here. It's really a joy for me to be able to join all of you and to share this panel with Amy and with Natasha, both of whom 
have been mentors for me in how to live my life as an intersectional being writing intersectional poems. I am also quite obviously grateful for the opportunity to celebrate the talent of Rita Dove. Uh, God sent us an angel and that angel walks the earth with us. Um, my challenge today is to tell you just one of the many ways Rita's work has changed my life. As many of you know, I'm honest and forthright about everything, even the things that are actually none of your damn business. <laughs> there is very little about my life that I think of as too private to say, and yet if you ask me how old I am, I will lie. <laughs> if you don't believe me, check the Best American Poetry series. I've been published there three times under three different birth dates. <laughs> They get so angry with me, too. It's hilarious. Every year. I love it. I'm like always praying that I get in there just so they can, I can have the fight with them. Anyway, um, I, <laughs> I say all of this. I say all of this so you know that we are in a very special occasion when I reveal Rita Dove won the Pulitzer Prize when I was in elementary school. And she was poet laureate of the, oh, wow. And she was poet laureate of the United States by the time I was in high school. I'm going to pause there so you can do some math. <laughs> I imagine I don't have to tell you what seeing Rita's face on posters in the schools and libraries. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought it was going to be her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I imagine I don't have to tell you what seeing Rita's face on posters in the schools and libraries where I was reared meant to me and my sense of possibility for living my life as a poet. Possibility. Possibility is a particularly strong word for us, the people who populate this room, the people who flock to this conference every year, each of us showing up just to make sure, no, I'm not crazy. <laughs> or at least, I'm not the only crazy one. <laughs> um, possibility is what allows us the nerve to write and to believe that something can, been, can be made from our scribbles, our drafts, our obsession with language. Most of us are here in spite of and sometimes because of the fact that someone else thought the life we chose, the artist's life, was not a sustainable life. And here we are proving the naysayers wrong. I am here today because I am the descendant of a people who, against all odds, believed my existence possible. People who were not allowed to write. And then people who couldn't write. And then people who worked so hard and with their hands for so many hours that to think about writing would only lead to further exhaustion. And yet, these people dreamed of me. Before I was born, they thought someone like me could be. Isn't that something? <laughs> James Baldwin uh, writes about this in, in an essay, how 
um, at the HBCUs in this country, you know, those dorm rooms, those classrooms, there were people who had never even seen what a college was that were raising money, <laughs> you know, for the chairs and the class. I just, I, every time I think about y'all, anyway, y'all don't know. Okay. I know. I, okay. <laughs> right, right. Um, before I was born, they thought someone like me could be a reading and writing black poet. They may not have been educated, but they knew I would need an education. In 2004, I wasn't in elementary school and I wasn't in high school. I was continuing my education in my fourth year of a prestigious PhD program for poetry. And I was living that story that is so old to us, that is so old to us now, that we sometimes think of it as a cliche. You know that story. The black one. Or one of the only black ones who is almost always offended. Josh Rivkin's here, he can tell you this about me. <laughs> Fellow students and teachers needed to touch my hair and to ask me to leave the class when they bothered to put something as broad a subject as black poetry on a day of the syllabus. This is a PhD program. There would be faculty searches for women, at the end of which a man somehow got hired. <laughs> this, I'm not even, I wish I was making this up. This happened twice, by the way. Uh, I have written here, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know the story. Quite recently in this country, we've seen how we really act. Somewhere in all of this, Rita Dove appeared yet again to save my life, to remind me of possibility. As if her poems had not done enough work, she wrote a letter to the editor of Poetry Magazine. I had no idea that I needed someone to fight for me, that I needed to be reminded that my ancestry, my family, is an extended family, that women like Rita Dove had been writing with someone like me in mind long before ever meeting me. The letter did three things for me. Number one, it let me know that some of the feelings I had of invisibility had a lot to do with who I thought needed to be looking at me. Number two, it gave me a framework for what my life would become, not just as a poet, but as a kind of literary activist who understands that our beloved community of writers is yet a microcosm of a larger society. And no matter what my poems said, did, or were about, I would always have to be vigilant, prepared to say it, when I see us falling short, not just in our art, but in our treatment and consideration of one another. And three, it let me know that it was okay for me to expect that everyone ought to prepare for and know the tradition from which I was born, just as much as I have prepared for and know the tradition from which John Ashbery and Robert Haas and Charles Wright was born. Can I read you the fierce and ferocious and brave letter from Rita that saved my life? Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Wow. I'm an old school teacher, so many of you have the letter via a handout. Yay. I get so excited about handouts, y'all don't know. My students, always, my students are always like, it's a piece of paper, Dr. Brown. Uh, <laughs> I've redacted parts of the letter for the sake of time, but I haven't blotted anything out, so you will be able to read it in full le later. Uh, here we go. 
Y'all, this is about to wear y'all out. Some of y'all have never seen this. It's going to wear you. It's going to change your life. <laughs> Dear, I mean, you know, just think about me like, you know, like literally 70 pounds less. Like, seriously, watch this. I am disappointed in both reviews of Garrison Keillor's anthology, Good Poems, nearly as much in the anthology itself. Keillor dedicates his compilation to all the English teachers, especially the great ones, and yet he neglects one of the cardinal guidelines for today's English curriculum, to select material that reflects multifaceted, the multifaceted fabric of our society. Young minds, hell, all minds are impressionable. And an anthology overwhelmingly populated by white poets is likely to send the message that only white folks deserve and or are capable of writing good poems. For those readers who might have missed it, as both of poetry's esteemed gentlemen reviewers did, let me point out that in Keeler's entire book, all 294 poems of it, 2004, y'all, all 209, and then, well, let me stop. Because <laughs> y'all kill me with all your privilege of surprise. Y'all kill me with that. Like, y'all, like, but whatever. Anyway, um, let me point out that in Keeler's entire book, all 294 poems on it, of it, I could find only three black poets. All of them dead, no less. And the one woman, actually a blues singer. Now, I may be missing someone. Poems can be blessedly colorblind, but by any standard, this is an abysmal percentage. Nor is there a Hispanic or Asian American or Native American presence. I'm sorry. And then if you say something, people try to act like you're crazy. I'm sorry. Um, in his foreword, Keeler claims to have merely collected poems America, real America, good America, wants to read. One can only conclude that his America never reads work by living African-American poets. There's no Lucille Clifton, no Marilyn Nelson, no Elizabeth Alexander, or Sonia Sanchez. Not even Gwendolyn Brooks, exclamation point. Not to mention Sandra Cisneros, Alberto Rios, Joy Harjo, Gary Soto, Kathy Song, all essentially narrative, quotation marks accessible, and memorable poets, none of whose poems Keeler deemed worthy soul food, worthy soul food for his good American people. Y'all see this? Y'all see what's happening? 2004, she told you. We've been telling y'all, y'all don't like to listen. I don't know why. In their reviews, neither reviewer touches upon this crucial flaw, probably because it simply doesn't impinge upon their lives. I find the air pretty thin and scarcely veiled, reserved for, and, this, and that scarcely veiled reserve for white sign sure can take one's breath away. I've been at the business for poetry for some time. I know I'm considered more of a non-militant writer. Come on, Rita Dove. As I, as I get older, however, my patience wears thinner. I've grown weary of having to point out what should be obvious to anyone with sense and sensibility. I resent the, come on, right? I, re 
resent the complacent, single-minded arrogance of myopic men of letters whose curious brand of goodwill perpetuates racist selectivity. I resent their transparent, self-serving attacks on concepts such as multiculturalism and feminism that have propelled our society towards a truer democracy. I can't believe I didn't write this. I <laughs> presumption that their, that their majority in numbers absolves them from paying attention to fair representation, leaving it up to those who have been marginalized to take note, tally the figures, and mount the protest. What a waste of energy, emotion, enterprise. No wonder Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man gave up and went underground. Well, my mama didn't raise a bean counter. I have better things to do. Like trying to sit down and write a good poem, for example. Thank you. goodness, my goodness. That was 2004. <laughs> 2004, not 1964. 2004. Rita Dove. Rita Dove. I'm not used to a name with such short syllables. <laughs> but that was, that was a name that means so much to me. I could write a whole essay of just embarrassments towards Rita, but I've just got a short amount of time. I wanted to touch on a couple points. And you know, I just as a background, when I first was putting together this panel, I didn't give any um, direction or narration to, uh, to Jericho or Natasha. So Jericho, it's amazing to see how many things here, it's gonna be overlapping here. This is all, I, that's the first I had heard of what Jericho was gonna present. But I wanted to tell you, if you were new to this country, in the 80s or 90s, and you looked at TV, or movies, or books, or watched MTV, that kind of thing. But back to books, especially poetry books, you might not believe that a person who looked like me even existed. There's no, hardly, hardly, hardly any Asian American unless they were working at a convenience store in the movie with a really funny accent. Certainly nobody in the books that I was reading or being assigned in, in class. And that's, you know, that's the 90s and 80s. From the time I was four years old, I learned how to parrot the words, I want to be a doctor, just like mommy. That was the whole way through until college. And through college, I was a chemistry major up until my junior year. I never knew living poets until that year. I never knew, I was never ever introduced to a living poet until that year of college. My poetry teacher at that time assigned the Poulin Anthology from BOA. And it was a collection, those of you who don't know, it's a collection of contemporary American poets. And it had a glorious a five by seven author photo on, on the, the left side accompanying the selection of poets. Um, and Rita Dove's face shone out among a sea of white pages, white folks, 
And I, I just remember pausing, pausing at this page of beauty, let's put it, I mean, let's just say it, pause of beauty, pause it to admire this place of beauty. But on a personal note, I did not know, and this is still, this is still college, so I wasn't thinking about being a mother or a wife or anything like that. I was just thinking about my next meal or my next, you know, assignment that day. I did not know you could be brown, alive, a mother, a wife, a professor, and still write poems to exude joy and fierceness. That, that map had never been presented to me. And I, I just didn't know it was possible. All I was ever taught or all I observed were men messing around with their students or women who hated their children or women who were messing around with other people. And, and it, was just, it was just so refreshing to see someone with um, such elegance and grace and pride in what she, in every aspect of her life. She, Rita Dev provided a map for this fledgling chemistry major who never knew how to light a Bunsen burner. <laughs> and two months after I had read her poems in the Poulin Anthology, I declared and switched and told my parents I was not going to be in pre-med uh, because I couldn't light a Bunsen burner, but also, but also because um, Rita's poems changed me. She didn't provide me the map, the only map for a brown woman, but a map, a map full of possibility that I never knew existed. She was the first living poet I read who wrote about motherhood with such tenderness and fierceness. And again, just to have a living poet write about children in such a way. And I was not one of those women, those young college students who said, oh, when I have kids. I didn't like kids. I didn't even know I w I, that was even a part of my future. Um, and, and now I have two little ones. Um, but I'm just so grateful. I'm just so grateful that I even had that map of a possibility that you could not do it all. I hate that phrase. I hate, hate, hate that phrase of a woman who does it all, but that it was possible to write with tenderness about your ch children, to write with tenderness about love and desire, um, and to be on fire for your own students as well, and to have a life outside of academia. Um, I internalized all of this at a time before I ever knew I would ever want children. And I, I keep coming back to that because that was so important to me at a time that I never, I never even anticipated that I would need that later on. One thing I wanted to mention, on just on a, on a craft note though, um, her poem, um, From Mother Love, uh, about uh, kind of retelling and revisioning the myth of Persephone and Hades, um, is still the best use. There's one poem in particular um, it's still the best use of the sense of smell that I've ever read in my entire life. And I just wanted, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read um, a selection from that. And I just also wanted to, um, oh, I'll save that part for a minute. Hang on one second. Let me read you. I just have never seen smell depicted, still to this day, um, the way Rita did in this poem. And this is called Hades Pitch from Mother Love. This is Hades speaking to Persephone here, kind of a seduction. If I could touch your ankle, he whispers, there on the inside above the bone. He leans closer, breath of lime and peppers, 
I know I can make love to you. She considers this, secretly thrilled, though she wasn't quite sure what he meant. He was good with words, words that went straight to her liver. Was she falling for him out of sheer boredom? Cooped up in this anything-but-humble dive, stone gargoyles leering and brocade drapes licked with fire? Her ankle burns where he described it. She sighs just as her mother above ground stumbles, is caught by the fetlock, bereft in an instant, while the great man drives home his desire. I've never forgotten that poem, and I just wanted to just pause for just a moment here. On a completely superficial level, y'all just take a look at the screen. Just wait one second. my first time doing tech, so hang on one moment. Um, A few years ago for National Poetry Month, I curated a selection of of poets in their shoes. I never knew. I said, you know, maybe, just maybe, Miss Rita might contribute, but I knew it was a long shot. She was... This is what she submitted to me. I just want to mention, people were turning in their ratty shoes, their kind of broke down um, running shoes. This is what she submitted to me. So I said this. I want to mention, I want to mention, these are made in Argentina. The bottoms are suede. These are tango shoes. I had to save this. This was the finale of the month-long feature on Poets and Shoes. I just... Rita, thank you for just being a multifaceted poet in every single way. Thank you. Okay, good afternoon. See if I can get through this longer than Jericho did. I started graduate school at Hollins University, then Hollins College, in 1990. And there were no other black students in my program or black faculty. I could tell you stories about the number of times my work was critiqued and criticized, not for the quality of my language or lack thereof or the imagery or the clarity of thought, but for the difference of my experience my perceived otherness. But that's a story we know well. Jericho already said it's a cliche now. That I often felt isolated by my experience in those all-white or mostly white workshops was given beautiful articulation in Toy Derricotte's The Black Notebooks. Reading that book was a validation rather than a negation of my experience. But something and someone intervened for me long before that. It was 1991, just four years after Rita Dove won the Pulitzer Prize, and I was headed off to begin an MFA program at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. My father, perhaps knowing it would only get worse, gave me a copy of Rita Dove's Thomas and Beulah. 
And I'm going to say more about my father and, and Rita. Uh, nothing salacious, but... <laughs> or maybe. I mean, at least not on her part. <laughs> I read it straight through, finding myself, my experience, my people, the people I'd grown up with and called my elders on every page, a history that was American and black. It became a Bible for me, and I mean that in the way you lay your hand on it when you are vowing to speak the truth, the way my grandmother read hers for strength and courage, the way she put money inside its pages in the hope that our fortunes would change, or at least not be plundered. I began to carry it with me everywhere. It was in my bag the day my famous professor, and a lot of you have heard this story by now, so you know who I'm talking about. If you don't, come up and I'll name check later. <laughs> but I don't like to speak ill of the dead. Told me to unburden myself of the death of my mother, to unburden myself of being black, as if I were the one who placed the burden of history of white supremacy on my own back. And write instead about the situation in Northern Ireland. <laughs> A story of struggle he was more interested in. But there was another story. The antidote to his words. Rita's chronicle of family history and the shared public history of our nation. I remember that moment getting to the chronology, and I said, oh, that's how you do it. Just there. This is not just black history, just a history of these people, not even just a personal history, but it is the history of our nation. It was not long after that that I began not only to turn to the book again and again to read it, but to learn from it from the fierceness of it, to ingest it, to imitate its lines, to learn how to enter my own story. Without her knowing it, Rita was my teacher. Her work saved me. It taught me how to tell the truth and not to be afraid to do so. I want to close by saying something else personal in tribute to this remarkable woman. This year is the uh, 50th anniversary of Loving versus the State of Virginia. My parents got married uh, in 1965, however, um, when it was still illegal in Mississippi and um, Kentucky and as many as 20 states in the nation. I think because of this, Whenever my father came across Rita Dove, and he came across her pretty early, uh, you guys were in a chat book together in the Inland Boat series, maybe one of your first publications. I think it was perhaps the first for my father. And he'd never forgotten this poet that, that he encountered in those pages. And following her, and later on seeing um, Thomas and Beulah and her winning the prize, and beginning to know a little bit more about her personal story, after he gave me that book, there was a point at which we saw Rita Dove um, and met her together for the first time. And my father uh, was my white parent. My father um, was also a poet. My father used to, as Jericho can, can attest to, used to like to come up and signify that he was an alpha. He, he pledged a black fraternity. <laughs> 
at Kentucky State College in the 60s. So he would come up to Jericho always to, to give him the grip because he wanted Jericho to know. Every time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But my father had another grip that he reserved just for Rita. I, I think he had this idea that there was a kind of solidarity in, you know, the, the people who had forged ahead with interracial marriage, even, even though Rita and Fred's marriage was a little later. Um, he saw Rita as part of that righteous struggle. And so he would always come up to Rita and try to give her some grip that he had imagined that would <laughs> make them fraternal sorority kind of in this thing. I think he must have given it to Fred, too. <laughs> but he, he really gave it to Rita, I think. <laughs> okay, what I'm trying to say is... <laughs> Interracial relationships have a fraternity. <laughs> but I think it was different for my father. Um, Who was the initiation? <laughs> Are you going to let me finish this? I'm sorry. <laughs> let me put it another way. <laughs> and I don't mean to like give a whole lecture about interracial relationships. But you do know that um, it is uh, very uncommon. It's more common now, but it is still the least common to see it like this, black woman, white man. So my father was particularly, I think, drawn to Rita because in many ways she was a woman not unlike his long-dead first wife, my mother. And I think in giving me Thomas and Beulah, my father gave me back a little of my own mother. Most of my ancestors are dead now. But my literary ancestor, my literary mother, is still here. And I love her. First of all, to see so many people here. This is, thank you, thank you, thank them, thank everyone. <sighs> I had no idea what they were going to say, <laughs> nor that my shoes would be up there. That was kind of And, and you know, I, I didn't get to stand before you now without a whole lot of people who never were noticed by anyone. I stand here and I think of my father with his index cards 
memorizing a presentation that he had to give in front of the chemistry division at Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. He was the first African-American chemist in the rubber industry. Okay, got it. Woo! Technology. He um, he uh, was tops in his chemistry class. He could turn on a Bunsen burner. Sorry. Uh, he he coached his um, classmates in organic chemistry, and they got the jobs. And he became the elevator operator at Goodyear Tire and Rubber, and took them up and down. And then his chemistry professor and his classmates prevailed upon the administration to hire him. Now, I tell you that because, you know, these things are complicated. And, and, and we've all have stories of exclusion and struggle. And for the masses of them out there to marginalize and to silence us, whether we are black, female, transgendered or just, you know, writers who are trying to say anything, there's always, there's someone, the one or two people who are going to help you no matter what. And we have to remember that. We've got to remember that. My life is full of those kind of instances. So my father became the first um, black chemist in the rubber industry. I did not know that until I was actually about junior high school, going into high school, he didn't, he kept it from us. He just pretended life was good. Um, and I asked him later, years later, I said, why did you not tell us about all these things that had happened to you? And he said, I didn't want you to be bitter. He said, because if you're bitter, they've got you. If you have joy, no one can really get you. And that that sense of always having joy, of always being able to find um, the the moment that can lift your spirit is a piece of that one piece in the arsenal that my parents gave me. Um, I think that they loved me so dearly, our children so dearly, that they exposed us to the world and the hurt that they knew we were going to get because that way they could demonstrate what you could use against it. Empathy or knowledge, particularly discovery, and joy in the small things. And irony. Irony, that'll get you through a lot. <laughs> and so I remember once my, both my mother and my father saying, you should be 150% prepared. You know when you're not. And if the world judges you at 50%, which can happen a lot, you know you've got 150%. So you already have a secret weapon. You know, they kind of phrase it that way. Now, I don't want to make this into, you know, but, but that is one of the things that, that, that kind of steeled me. Because when I was growing up in the 50s and the 60s, um, I had not seen a living poet. Um, and there certainly were very few instances of African-American or women who were writing poems 
at that time. And so I didn't know I wanted to be a poet because I had not seen any. I did not know it was possible. I thought poetry existed in the books and I loved it. But like Shakespeare, it was something, it was dead and old and it brought me to life, but it was in a book. And it wasn't until a few really amazing teachers, all of them white, who nudged me here or there. They just kind of offered something in the middle of all of that. An English professor, an English professor in 11th grade who took a group of us to see John Chardy who was there for book signing. Uh, he had just translated the Inferno, Dante's Inferno. There you have the wealth of European literature in front of you, but there was a living, breathing poet. And there was our teacher who took us there on a Saturday. And I'm looking at this man, I had no idea who he was, really, but he had a book. And that book was from the Italian. And so I said, oh, I've got to read this Inferno, whatever it is. And, you know, and then you just kind of go, then you read that and you say, oh, been there, know this. Uh, so so that, that's part of it. But then, and then there were the people who just, by their very lives, showed me some things. My grandmother, the Beulah, and Thomas and Beulah, um, taught me so many things without teaching me, you know. Like years later I said, oh, that's what she meant. That's why she did that. And, and, and I was just lucky when I was about 13 when my, 14 when my grandfather died and I, um, I went, um, I was young and I couldn't date yet so I was assigned the weekends to stay with my grandmother. The people were staying with her. And so I got this chance to hear her just talk about her husband as a young man and the things that he had gone through. I knew nothing of this story, really, because uh, the way of teaching in those days in my communities was that you, you taught the young people how to stand up for themselves, but you also taught them to stay back because they might get smashed. And so... Uh, you didn't kind of expose, we weren't exposed to the ugliness. We would, we, they intimated the ugliness through irony, usually. So she would tell me these stories of his, uh, of segregation and, and how they came up, how he came up from the north. But she'd always say it like, well, that's just the way it is, and we just kind of roll with it. And, and years later, I said to her, damn, that was rough, what he went through. Um, and yet he was always very kind and loving. I'm going to read a poem, um, which is about my grandfather. I had no idea what I was going to do when I was a poet, but I thought I would um, be inspired by all of you. You just, oh, God. Because this is strength, too. There is a strength in just not... It's a strength in insisting upon the, the, the beauty of a, of a moment in the midst of horror. And so when, my, when I was about 10 years old, now this is 19, and you can do this math, 1962, and, um, 
and, you know, lots of things in this country were not so great right about then. Um, my, my grandfather took us fishing. I am not an outdoors girl. Um, but at that time, we went fishing, man. We sat there, and he taught. What, did we, what I learned from the fishing was how to be still. This is called Fifth Grade Autobiography. I was four in this photograph fishing with my grandparents at a lake in Michigan. My brother squats in poison ivy. His Davy Crockett cap sits squared on his head so the raccoon tail flounces down the back of his sailor suit. My grandfather sits to the far right in a folding chair, and I know his left hand is on the tobacco in his pants pocket because I used to wrap it for him every Christmas. Grandmother's hips bulge from the brush. She's leaning into the ice chest, sun through the trees, printing her dress with soft, luminous paws. I am staring jealously at my brother. The day before he rode his first horn, horse alone, I was strapped in a basket behind my grandfather. He smelled of lemons. He's died, but I remember his hands. Now that poem was a poem where I kind of fictionalized my, my grandfather's life, you know, but, but looking at the picture, because every picture is a kind of a death and a life, I and mean, you look at it and it's still, no matter if the people are still alive. And I realized that all those years of being taken fishing, which at four was kind of fun, but at ten was not, <laughs> um, was a way for him to say, there's a space you can occupy where you can be with your thoughts and be fully yourself. And in his world, where he was constantly being told that he was nothing, in that moment, he was everything to himself. So that, these are the, we all have these people in our lives, and I hope uh, we have someone in our lives who is like that. I, um, all of that leads to the point that, that I feel that all I wanted when I began writing was a quiet life of the mind. And the world will not let you have this quiet life of the mind. It is because there's another thing. In order to have that quiet life of the mind or a, a place where you can contemplate, you have to be able to live with yourself. And so, though I never wanted to have to write that letter, there was no way in the world I could not write that letter to poetry. And though I felt that my, I, I wondered as I was writing Thomas and Beulah, would anyone care about these ordinary people? I felt like I could not, not because I cared so madly and deeply about ordinary life, ordinary life, whatever that and when it came to motherhood and having a child and, 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 and realizing that there were so, I felt there were so few poems about a happy marriage, <laughs> which I have, and about a motherhood with all of its, the, the love that, that, that gets suffused in that even when, when you wish you could just 
hire another babysitter. It's, it's still, so I felt I, I have to write these poems. Um, and I, I'll read this poem and then I, I will say a couple things about graduate school and then I'm going to open it up to questions. Um, my um, daughter is now a professor. It feels crazy mad to be able to say that. And she is back in the world where where she was born. She's, she's teaching at Arizona State, which is where I started my career. It's kind of bizarre. She just kind of went right, zooming right around. But she, um, I thought to myself, oh, I'm not going to write any motherhood poems, you know, but hey, this was my life. And so she inspired this poem. She, we had a, we had a, I say this because we have a pack. The poem is called After Reading Mickey in the Night Kitchen for the Third Time <laughs> for the Third Time Before Bed. Um, it's which was her favorite book. And it, it deals with something that well, you'll see. Um, but we reached a pack when she was young and didn't know any better, I could read this poem everywhere. And then when she began to really read, I I said, It's your choice. Do you want me to read this poem? Because you're in it. And she said, we hit upon a thing. She said, um, uh, as long as it's in a, in, within a 50-mile radius of my life, no. <laughs> and then a couple years ago, she said, you can read that poem. So, after reading Mickey in the Night Kitchen for the third time before bed, I'm in the milk and the milk's in me. I'm Mickey. My daughter spreads her legs to find her vagina. Hairless, this mistaken bit of nomenclature is what a stranger cannot touch without her yelling. She demands to see mine and momentarily we're a lopsided star among the spilled toys, my prodigious scallops exposed to her neat cameo. And yet the same glazed tunnel layered sequences. She is three. That makes this innocent. We're pink, she shrieks, and bounds off. Every month she wants to know where it hurts and what the wrinkled string means between my legs. This is good blood, I say, but that's wrong too. How to tell her that it's what makes us, black mother, cream child, that we're in the pink and the pink's in us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't have to worry about that anymore, so. <laughs> We're talking about that last time. Um, when I began giving poetry readings, when I began to have to learn how to give poetry readings, there was an unspoken rule, and this was when I was in graduate school, kind of, that to be considered a serious poet of any merit, as a woman, you could not wear a skirt. You had to show up in pants, you know, some kind of, the, the men had their own little uniform. It was mostly 
you know, kind of jeans and then the, the jacket with the leather patches. You know, that kind of thing. But, but, but if you showed up in a skirt, you were not a serious poet. Now think about what that says. And I still remember that the first reading I decided to wear a skirt, it was in Texas. Was I crazy? Um, and I, I've always loved fashion. My mother was a seamstress. Uh, she put herself in business school by, by doing that. My grandmother was a hat maker. That's a whole other thing. But what I mean is that the art of looking good was one of those things in the arsenal of, of uh, you know, things that you could, de defenses against this world that would ignore you. If they were going to ignore you, they were going to ignore some of the best fashion in the world. And so you had to look good. My mother never came down the stairs to make breakfast without some rouge and, you know, mascara on. You, just, you never knew. Someone could ring the doorbell and the Avon lady was always there. So... And, and that sounds trivial, but what it is is that you're saying, I'm going to use art on me. I'm going to make myself into art. And uh, you go to church, and it was, it was something else. It was something else. But I grew up like that, and, I, but, and so we were always decked out, even though, as children, even though the clothes, you know, the material came from discount places. And so I learned how to find good fabric, and I learned how to sew, and I learned how to, you know, um, do that, and, and I've always reveled in that. So I, I was not going to show up again in some pants to read in, you know, some jeans, when my whole personality, my whole being said, this is what I need in order to get over, so to speak. And so I did wear my skirt, and it was a terrifying experience. Uh, but then I realized that as I was standing up there, and I thought, and if they dismiss me because I have a skirt on, I don't want to read to these people anyway. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, something broke through, and I said, okay, let's just go. So I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's great to see everyone looking so good. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and it's not, a, it's not, it's not anything that these things that we do outside of that hard work of sitting down to, to write the, the good poem to, or, the, you know, the story or whatever it is, that that's part of our being. Every little piece of things that you do in your life are fit for the page as well, and because we are witnesses to that incredible blossoming of human life out there. Um, we began, right, and I'm going to stop now, but we began, I have to talk about those shoes, and tell you that... Uh, the, 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 the short story tale behind the dancing is that in 1998, when lightning struck our house and it burned down, and we were going through the ashes trying to recover things. There's a lot you can find. We discovered that, you know, once a tragedy strikes, there's almost a certain, there was a certain kind of relief. I said, okay, that happened. We survived. What is around me, the most important things are here. But we were going through the ashes, and our neighbors tried to cheer us up by taking us to a dinner dance, and the people were dancing, and I said, oh, I've always wanted to waltz, learn how to waltz. And those same amazing neighbors, all of whom were white, said, let's go dancing. And they signed for the whole neighborhood, and we all took our introductory free lesson, 
Terry Dean's dance studio. <laughs> and Fred, my husband, and I were the only ones who stuck with it because every night we would go there and we would dance. During the day, we would try to rebuild that house. I thought I was done with poetry for a while. You don't think about writing poetry if you're trying to rebuild your house, if you don't even have underwear anymore because it all burned up. Uh, but I thought, okay, I can put on, you know, a short dress and go, you know, cha cha every night. And it stayed in our life, and I met a whole other group of people from all different walks of life, and the only thing that matters is when you got on the floor. And each one of you who comes into AWP brings your whole, you know, you have these lives behind you, but what matters here is our work. It's, it's really the same kind of chart. It, it, it was another piece of thing that saved my life, and I began writing poems about dancing, which is how American Smooth came out. So another lesson learned, but I, I, I loved so much being a student again and being reminded that something like this could, could happen. And, and I remember when I was in graduate school, and then I will stop because I promised to say just about graduate school. I went to Iowa. Um, that's enough about Iowa, but I will tell you about... <laughs> I will tell you that in the midst of, of getting those same kind of things like being the only black person in my class, uh, there was one Hispanic, Sandra Cisneros, there was one Native American, Joy Harjo, they had filled their quota, that was it, we were done. Um, but there were a few teachers who said, who kind of encouraged me, and in fact, one of them, Stanley Plumley teaching a course on sequences, and I decided I was going to write poems about slavery, slave narratives particularly. Up to that point, I was just learning. I was like, I'm not going to write poems that will immediately degenerate into workshop discussion thematic-wise. You know, those are going to talk about how black they are, this, what they didn't understand. Um, but at that point, I, I had to, and I wanted to, and so I showed him first what I was going to do. And he said, you know what's going to happen. And I said, yes, I know what's going to happen. And he says, okay, I'm with you, you know. And so when the first person said, I feel like I've been given a dose of castor oil instead of the apple a day I want, I said, maybe you ought to change your diet. Well, that's what stands <laughs> But to know, to know that he had my back, right? So, okay, enough of that. I just, I, what I want to say is that I am, I feel, I'm trying not to cry, which is why I'm trying to, you know, I'm not going to, okay. Because I was raised not to let them see you sweat, right? Um, and, but believe me, the tears are there. And I just want to thank these three amazing poets here. Just the, the, the fact that you are here writing in the world makes me feel a little less lonely from those early days. So thank you. Thank you. And anyone here, if you have questions, please throw them out. I'll try to answer them.
much, Rita. We're going to open it up to everyone um, for questions for any of the panels. All I ask is that you speak really, really loud again the podcast, and I'll try my best to repeat it as well. Okay? All right. Yes. As you said, uh, you know, or intimated, there, there are all sorts of families, right? Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of families, and there's one right here that you've got a really big family here, an extended family. Now, you may not be ready to write about your family, but understanding them or trying to understand how they hurt you or what the pain is is part of love. It's a hard love. It's a tough love. But in a certain way, it's loving yourself enough to go back and go through it. You do not have to show these poems to anyone else in the world, but you may have to write them, right? And every moment, I find that when something is really, really moving me, then I get really tough on myself technically in the poem, because the only way that you can express yourself, state yourself as a poet or as a fiction writer, as a writer, is to write the best damn piece you can. And all that pain and all that hurt, you put it in that technique, you just make it so good that nobody can rip it apart. You mm-hmm. see, that's, that's part of it. And, and, and it, it'll help you. I mean, but um, it's, it's going to hurt. No one said this stuff was easy, <laughs> you know. But you've got you got another kind of family help you while you go through it to explain or to try to explain to others as you're writing how intricate that net of whatever you know of of, of pain or passive aggressiveness or whatever it is in the family is, and then eventually have someone say this moved me or helped me as these people did today to me. There's, n- there's nothing more healing <coughs> better in the universe. Okay. Great. Somebody else? Yes. I'm just going to evolve and ask this question. <laughs> so, you, you wrote a, a poetry magazine about Garrison Keillor's uh, anthology. And then, um, when Helen... Um, you know, because I've approached this critically, right? Mm-hmm. I just have always wanted to ask this question. <laughs> all right, all right. Bindler, you know, wrote that review in the New York Review of Books. How did you gather your courage, right, to, to approach this? Hmm. Right? How did you, I mean, you know, how did you and how do you still gather the second part is, but remain graceful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the question is about 
going from the Poetry Magazine uh, letter in the Garrison Keillor anthology to the Penguin anthology of 20th Century Poetry, which Helen Vendler uh, tried to eviscerate, a New York Review of Books, and how did I approach it and, and gather the courage to write back to her? I was counseled by many people. I just said, oh, you know, rise above, don't answer. And I'm like, hell no. Uh, <laughs> Not to answer would have been a silence, would have been almost to condone it. I had to, you know. So it's really, you know, courage is, it's, it's not like I was storming a battlefield. It's just I had, no, no choice. There was no choice in my thought, in my mind. That, and and how to stay graceful, many revisions. I, I, I remember... <laughs> But you know, it was interesting because when I, when I read that review, um, and I knew I was going to be attacked by someone. If you do an anthology, you prepare to be hated. It's, you know, the, the, all of the decisions that go in into it, and there were a lot of really, really ugly things that went on in terms of permissions, trying to gather. Eh, I don't want to go into that right now. But, but that's not visible to the front, to the people who pick it up. But I, um, as I read that review of hers, and I read it over and over, and um, I was I was alone actually because Fred was actually my husband was in, who is such a everyone should have a Fred. Oh, honey. Anyway, he was he was in Germany with his mother who was ill, and and uh, I. I was reading it, and I had called him, and I had said, you've got to try to find this thing. And then I read it again, and I thought, this is poorly written. <laughs> and that's, I thought, why is she so angry that she can't write as well as she can write other times? <laughs> and that told me this was, you know, this was in a different way. So I, I just made sure mine was better written. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right there. <laughs> I think we all are working on that one a little bit. I mean, what I mean is that you give it your very best effort to make the best poem you can, which, which for me entails not only a thousand drafts, and I love writing revisions, but, but also reading it over and over at the worst time of day for me, so I'm, I'm kind of evil, and, I, and I'm going to be mean to myself, and that's mornings. Um, and uh, then... How do you get rid of those voices? You know, when I left Iowa, the whole next year I wrote short stories. I did not write poems. I wrote stories. And I tried to learn how to make a good short story because I was so fearful that 
I was going to have an Iowa voice, you know, because it's it's kind of a, a thing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when you when you don't know if it's really the best, I think the, the best thing to do is to go somewhere where you are complete. Um, you know, new per, newbie at it, mm-hmm. and learn that skill really well because it does it does relate. I've learned so much about um, poise in in poems from dancing, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, then I've learned from a lot of other things. It's, if, it doesn't have to be dancing. It can be, you know, carpentry. It can be all sorts of things. But, but, but something, a jo- uh, something that is beautifully made, that is well made, so that it becomes a piece of, of art, something that nourishes your soul. All of that can teach you how to write a better poem. And so that's part of it, too. It's hard. It is hard. But sometimes I find going to another genre helps. Thank you for that question. We have time for just one more. We could go on for another hour, I know. I want to make sure everybody gets to have lunch and everything. One more. Who's the lucky, lucky person? There's someone up over here. Oh, yes. Yes. I think first of all, gosh, one of the things that, oh, I'm sorry, the question was about um, this new regime and uh, how we can endure and how we can navigate it. And uh, I think that when, well, two things I'm going to say quickly. One of them was that when I met my husband and we went to Germany, we lived in Germany for a bit. And Fred is a journalist and a novelist. And I was stunned by how writers were actually part of the, of the, the political arena in the sense that they were often asked their opinion. And people would listen to them. I mean, they would actually interview them about something. And uh, the assumption, too, that we were witnesses to the world and therefore were important as writers to chart that other part of the news, which is the news of the, of the heart and the news of the spirit and of humanity. And then you come back to the States and it's not there. Mm-hmm. You know, no one pays, you think no one pays attention to. But what that taught me or showed me when I became Poet Laureate, for instance, and then beyond that, is that you just assume that someone wants to hear you. And they will start to listen if you kind of go, well, I don't know, no, they're not going to listen to you. You know, so you have to assume that, that that's news that they need to hear. And we do need to hear the news of the Spirit. Now, um, how to navigate someone who is going to take your words and make them into alternate, you know, realities is to insist on your words. I mean, to take back the word, you know, nasty to keep talking, to keep writing. I mean, again, to write 
the best things you can do. Show what something that is so beautifully wrought, so intricately wrought, that it moves someone to speechlessness. Then you, you know, that, that by contrast will help. But you're also citizens of the world. There's no reason why a writer also cannot be a citizen of the world. We are in this world. So don't think of it as a separate part of your life. It's, it's all fabric of your life. The fact that we're here in the belly of the beast, you know, talking about this right now is one really important first step. The keynote address last night also kind of gave us direction. I was like, oh man, it was so fabulous. So if you didn't get there, you know, listen to, I'm sure they're podcasting it. It's absolutely fabulous. Um, but, um, but one of the things that she talked about was how what writing does is teach us to um, writing is all about the other. It's all about understanding the other and realizing they're part of us and there's nothing to be afraid of. That's why it's so terrifying to the regime. Courage by knowing that there are other people out there who are writing and doing these things too. And we can come up with pretty inventive ways. After all, that's our business. Thinking of pretty inventive ways to stop this, to thwart it at every, at every moment. And to make the um, legislators, make the, the senators in the houses, the representatives, nervous about the constituents. If you stir them up, if you tell their stories, if you talk to the people in your community and tell their stories, we can do that. So, you know, these are all sorts of ways. But I can't give you, like, a big, you know, cure-all. It's going to be a long, hard fight. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please feel free to visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.